You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, friends, it is possible to have a zeal for God that is misguided. It is possible to pursue righteousness in a way that is in rebellion against God. It is possible to have a zeal for God's law and yet completely misunderstand its purpose and its standard. It is possible to give oneself to religion and yet be blind to the depth of sin and corruption that resides in us all. It is possible to stress the importance of obeying God's word, all while refusing to submit to God and to his righteousness. It is possible to wax eloquent about grace and salvation, all while holding sinners at a distance from the Savior. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 10. We're going to be considering the first 13 verses of this wonderful chapter this morning. And as you are making your way to Romans 10, let me speak just a few words by way of where we've been most recently in Paul's letter. Beginning in Romans 9 and verse 1, Paul expresses his heartfelt, sincere, deeply held grief for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He is grieved that so many of his fellow Israelites have rejected the Christ. They have not believed in Jesus. And their rejection, Israel's rejection of Jesus, is problematic on a number of levels. It would seem that perhaps God doesn't keep his promises. He made many promises to the people of Israel. And yet many of them reject Jesus. What do we make of that? Maybe the Lord is not as faithful as we thought. Or maybe Jesus just isn't the Messiah after all. Maybe a different one needs to come. Uh, The real Messiah is yet to arrive. And so in Romans 9 through 11, Paul, as we have considered for weeks now, is aiming to defend the truthfulness of God's word. He is aiming to defend the trustworthiness of God's word. He is aiming to defend the faithfulness of God. And he is aiming to be crystal clear and double down yet again that Jesus is the Messiah. The word of God, says Paul, has not failed. Every single one of God's promises that he's made, he's kept. He has always saved his people, and he has done so completely by his own power and his own grace. When it comes to God's purpose of election in choosing sinners in grace to save them, his purpose is to redeem them, to accomplish their salvation, and to show that he is a redeemer and he is the Savior. God saves completely by his grace and his mercy. And as we've considered, he alone is the ground of all of his goodness, all of his mercy, all of his grace that he shows to mankind. God himself is the ground of that because there could be no other ground. There certainly is no ground in us, no reason in us that God would be good or gracious or merciful to us. There is nothing foreseen in us or done by us that results in our salvation. Paul goes on to demonstrate that in showing mercy to some and passing by others, God is not unjust. In all the purposes of God, in salvation and judgment, the riches of his glory are displayed pointedly in vessels of mercy, whom God has called from the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Paul appeals to the prophets to show that the salvation of the Gentiles as well as the salvation of only a remnant of the Jews had been foretold. And then Paul asks, what shall we say to all of this? 
He answers that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness were given righteousness by faith. And that Israel, who sought to establish their own righteousness under the law through their works, did not attain the righteousness. In Israel's case, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Christ. It is always those who trust in their works who stumble over Jesus. But all those who trust in him for forgiveness and for righteousness and for eternal life will never be put to shame. That's where we've been. Let's now look to Romans 10. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise the Lord. We thank him for his word today and every day. My plan for our time this morning is to preach this text in three points and then land with a conclusion. So three points and a conclusion. Point one, we're going to look at verses one to four for a period of time. Point one is misguided zeal and the way to righteousness. Misguided zeal and the way to righteousness. Put your eyes on verse one. You see that Paul, again, like he had done at the beginning of Romans 9, expresses his heartfelt desire for his kinsmen to be saved. He prays to that end. This is all the more striking when you consider that upon Paul's conversion, many of his fellow Israelites would have viewed him as an enemy. And we know from the book of Acts that he suffered at their hands more than once. A couple of things here that are worth noting for us before we move beyond verse 1. This is the second time in 30-some-odd verses that Paul has expressed his affection for his kinsmen along with his desire and prayer to God that they would be saved. Do not miss that. Something is terribly wrong with our doctrine and our theology, if it ever took us to a place where this is not true of us. We work and we plead and we preach and we pray to see those that we know, those that we love, come to know and trust Christ as the Savior. We see that in the Apostle Paul, embracing the sovereignty of God and salvation, which is the only way a sinner is saved, is if God does it. To embrace that in no way whatsoever leads to indifference or to callousness for those who have not yet trusted Christ. 
Secondly, we notice that Paul prayed for the salvation of his fellow Jews. So he was laboring to that end, and he also prayed. He had acknowledged the sovereignty of God in salvation, and he prayed. In other words, we should avail ourselves of all of the means that the Lord has given us. He is a God of means as well as ends. The Lord knows everything that you need before you ask him, says Jesus. Therefore, pray this way. The sovereignty of God should never preclude prayer, but it should inform how we pray, even for the salvation of our family and friends and neighbors. We should persevere in praying for them and for their salvation, even as we work and talk and plead and preach to those ends. Those whom God has chosen in grace from before the foundation of the world will be saved. Amen. And that salvation will come about through the means that God has appointed. Both are true. Remember this, lastly, about Paul, too. If you're sitting there and you're thinking about your own life and you're thinking about people you love that you want to see come to trust Jesus, consider this. No one had been more opposed to the gospel than Paul. No one had been more opposed to Jesus than Paul. No one had been more opposed to the church than Paul. And God saved him. Paul knew that. It shows up at various points in his writing. He calls himself the chief of sinners, right? And so he preached and he prayed, knowing that God is in the business of saving wretched sinners because there is no other kind. As it concerns your loved one or your friend, take heart. Consider yourself. If God saved you, can he not save them? He can. Look at verse 2 now. Paul says, he's expressed his grief and his desire for the salvation of his fellow Israelites. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but their zeal is misguided. Paul certainly could make this assessment. He had been just like them. He had been as zealous as any. Their zeal, says Paul, is not according to knowledge. It's not according to understanding. It's not according to understanding of the law. It's standard, perfection at a spiritual level. It's purpose, which we're going to get to in a minute. Their zeal is not according to understanding of their sin and their corruption. Their zeal is not in accord with understanding of the kind of Messiah they need. They did not see that Jesus was the Christ of God, that he had come to die for the sin of his people and to be their righteousness and to give them eternal life. Verse 3, Paul says that his kinsmen, the Israelites, are ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now that phrase, the righteousness of God, is the same righteousness of God we read about beginning in chapter 1 and verse 17. It's the same righteousness of God that we read about in chapter 3 and verse 22 and various other places in the letter. It is the righteousness provided by God and revealed in the gospel. It is the righteousness that God gives to sinners by faith. This is the only kind of righteousness that a sinner could ever have. As we thought about for many, many weeks, as we made our way from Romans 1.18 to 3.20, Paul made it abundantly clear that all mankind is under sin and therefore incapable of being justified by his own works, by his own righteousness. The only righteousness a sinner could ever have is the righteousness of God given, received by faith. And Paul says that it is precisely that righteousness that his kinsmen are ignorant of. Paul says that being ignorant of this righteousness of God, the Jews thought to establish their own righteousness. And taking this in context with even Romans 9.32, if you put your eyes there, Israel pursued the righteousness of the law 
They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. We see clearly that Paul's fellow Israelites had sought to establish their own righteousness under the law through their works. And this is the kicker. In doing that, seeking to establish their own righteousness through their keeping of the law, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Anyone who does not submit to this righteousness that only God can give, that can't be worked for, that can only be received, anyone who does not submit to this, who does not humbly receive it, anyone who thinks that he can do something in order to obtain it, who thinks that she can do something to deserve it, anyone who tries to add anything to this righteousness that God gives, who thinks that he can contribute, even a part of the obedience, does not understand the corruption of his own heart, does not understand the holiness of God, and does not understand the standard of the law. Anyone who expects to be saved in whole or in part by any of his or her own works has made a fatal mistake. And it does not matter if such a person, like the Pharisee in Luke 18, gives God all the credit for the good that's in him. Verse 4. Paul grounds everything that he is saying in this, that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end, the perfection but perfect completion, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. The law, you know, promises life to those who keep it. We read that verbatim in Romans 7.10. The problem is that the law has been broken by us all. So what did God do? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, to condemn sin in the flesh, Romans 8.3. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who are in him, Romans 8.4. John Calvin writes these words on Romans 10.4. The law had been given for this end to lead us as by the hand to another righteousness. Whatever the law teaches, whatever it commands, whatever it promises, has always a reference to Christ as its main object. And hence, all its parts ought to be applied to him. But this cannot be done except we, being stripped of all righteousness, and confounded with the knowledge of our sin, seek gratuitous righteousness from him alone. What a striking statement that whatever the law commands, whatever it teaches, whatever it promises, has always a reference to Christ as its main object. And that all of the parts of the law ought to be applied to Christ. You see, the righteousness of the law is based on faith. The righteousness of the law is attained by faith. This is because Jesus kept the law, and his perfect law-keeping is counted to us as though we had perfectly kept the law. Thus, the righteousness of faith, writes Calvin, receives a testimony from the law itself. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? You remember that question at the end of Romans 3. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We confessed earlier this morning 
I'm going to briefly repeat these words because they're good for us to have in our ears and in our mouths. God imputes, he credits, he counts to us Christ's active obedience under the whole law and Christ's passive obedience in his death as our whole and only righteousness by faith. Whole, meaning it's all of our righteousness. Only, meaning it's the only kind we could ever have. Also, from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 60, consider these words. The answer to that question, how are you righteous before God? This excerpt, though I have broken all of God's commands, have never really kept any of them, and am still inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. The moment, beloved, that a person believes in Jesus, trusts in Jesus, receives the work of Christ in faith, the end of the law is attained in them. Meaning, the law is fulfilled in them. The moment we trust in Jesus and are united to him by faith, we come into possession of all of the righteousness that the law requires or ever could require of a human being. And so, consequently, having that righteousness, we have eternal life. Let's think together for just a moment after the emphasis of this text. And I'm always mindful in making comments such as these that things like this can be misunderstood, and I trust the Lord in that. Because I aim to speak as the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has written. As I mentioned in the introduction, people can be zealous for many good things. They can give themselves to it. They can discipline themselves to do all of the right things. And all of this be misguided. Certainly, this is common. Always has been in the world. I mean, think of every worldly religion. Every other religion in the world is about what you do. But this can be common as well, even amongst professing Christians. We always tend to bring our works back into the equation of salvation, to weave them back in somehow. This has been the great error in the history of the church for 2,000 years. When I have opportunity, which I do occasionally, to speak to students, if I've not spoken to a group of Christian students before, I often will lead with the Romans 4, 4, and 5, that God justifies the ungodly, because that's such a mind blow for a human being. And I often will ask a group of young people, how do you think amongst your peers that Christianity is most misunderstood? And to a person, they say, well, they think that Christianity is about what we do. Now, why do you think that is? It's sadly, in many cases, because the church has given people that impression. It is because, in many cases, churches, pastors, functionally teach this. It is because many professing Christians talk like this and think like this. Even amongst the thoughtful and the serious-minded, there are some who teach that we are justified by faith, but that we will finally be saved by faith in our good works. Many Christians explicitly or implicitly speak as though we are justified by faith, but we remain good with God through what we do. So here's an observation and a question. It is common for us to call into question a person's legitimacy because they're not doing the right things. And I'm saying this as a pastor of a church that practices church discipline, so do not misunderstand me. 
It is common for us to call into question a person's legitimacy because they're not doing the right things, because they aren't as disciplined as they should be, because there doesn't seem to be enough obedience to the law from our vantage point as we see it. It is common for us to question our own legitimacy along similar lines. But whether it concerns ourselves or others, do we have the same level of concern and do we operate with the same level of scrutiny when it comes to thinking that our law-keeping is a part of our final salvation? Do we, when it concerns ourselves or others, have the same level of concern when it comes to finding our confidence in what we're doing? Because Jesus and the apostles could not be clearer that the great danger, the damning error, is to put confidence in the flesh and to trust ourselves and to look to our works. So here's the takeaway in this sense. When it comes to righteousness before God, the first and greatest question to ask ourselves or anyone else is not, what are you doing? It's, who are you trusting? That's the first question. Is it Jesus and, or is it Jesus? Are you trusting Christ, or are you trusting Christ and yourself? There are, do not misunderstand this either, there are many good things that are good for us to do that we should pursue. Amen, someone. But these many good things, in accord with God's law or Christian wisdom, never have anything to do with our righteousness before the Lord. Not in any degree. Not in any measure. And here's the thing. This is the beauty of it. When this truth begins to hit home, we are enabled to pursue good things, to pursue obedience, to pursue living according with the law, we're able to pursue all of that with the joy and the peace and the freedom that the Lord intends for his children to have. It is all a matter of focus and emphasis. It is Christ alone. It is Christ always. Point two, the righteousness of the law is found in Jesus. Point two, the righteousness of the law is found in Jesus. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10. In these verses, Paul is going to prove what he asserted in verses 1 to 4 regarding the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith. Put your eyes on verse 5. Moses, says Paul, wrote about the righteousness of the law that's based on works. The person who does the commandments will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. Do this and you will live. That is what the law says when it is viewed as a covenant of works to be kept for righteousness. Do this and you'll live forever. The Lord promises eternal life to those who would keep the law perfectly. If anyone would be justified, however, by his own keeping of the law, he better keep the whole thing. Galatians 5.3, James 2.10 and 11. Here's the thing with the law, to be kept for righteousness. There is no grace. There is no mercy. There's no room for failure, even of the smallest kind, whether in thought, word, deed, desire. Look at verses 6 to 8. Paul continues to cite Moses, this time from the book of Deuteronomy. He alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 to 14. Two things are of note about those verses in Deuteronomy. If you were to turn there and read them, you would rightly observe that those words of Moses are written about the law, not the gospel. They're written about the law. Secondly, it's important that we understand that those verses in Deuteronomy 30, they follow the promise that God will circumcise the hearts of his people in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. So given that, Paul's application of those verses here in Romans 10 to the gospel is appropriate in two senses. 
Track with me. Paul's use of Moses is appropriate in the following two ways. Number one, just as the law was given plainly to the people of Israel, so too the gospel has been clearly given and taught in Scripture. Just as the law was given plainly, the gospel has been taught plainly in the Scripture. Second way, that this is entirely legitimate. And this is where Paul is going. In every sense, the law finds its fulfillment in the gospel. The law is given in the first place with Christ in view. The law finds its yes and amen and its fulfillment, its end in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes about the righteousness based on faith. You can see this in verses 7, 6, 7, and 8, that the righteousness based on faith tells us we don't need to do any works. We don't need to do anything. The righteousness based on faith says that we don't need to chase after the righteousness of the law through what we would accomplish. Though we are not able to perform what the law demands, the righteousness the law requires is given to us by grace through faith as revealed in the gospel. And the righteousness of the law is found in Jesus. And here's the beauty of what Paul says as well. He is not far off. Jesus and the righteousness of the law in him is not far off. We don't need to ascend to heaven, nor do we need to descend to the abyss in order to come to him. No, he and his righteousness are near to us. He is near. Think about this, what we do every Sunday. He is near. He and his righteousness are near to us, and he comes to us through his word. He and his righteousness are near to us, and he comes to us through his sacred ordinances of baptism and this supper. We preach him, and we hold him out. Whether you are sitting here this morning and you've been trusting Christ for 30 years or this is the first time you've darkened the door of a church, it doesn't matter. The word to every one of us, myself included, is the following. Miserable sinner, you are far worse than you imagine. Have you considered God's holy law? If you considered its standard, if you heard of a mountain called Sinai, if you heard about how that mountain shook, how there was lightning and thunder and smoke, and how anyone who touched it would die, do you think, do we think, that our half-baked attempts at righteousness could ever merit salvation in the sight of this God. They won't. But, miserable sinner, have you considered Jesus? That he is the promised Savior of the world. That he is God the Son who took on flesh and became a man and lived among us. Have you considered that he did everything required in God's holy law that he gave on that mountain? Have you considered that he took our sin upon himself and died on the cross to endure the curse of that holy law for us? Have you considered that he has defeated Satan, who is the great enemy of mankind? Have you considered that he conquered death and he conquered the grave in his resurrection? Have you considered that he is enough for righteousness and for forgiveness and for eternal life? Sinner, won't you trust him? That's the word. You may ask, is Christ, brother, is Christ really that close? 
a Christ and his righteousness really that close that we might simply trust him and come to him and be saved. Yes, that is the testimony of God himself. How different, sadly, from the gospel taught by Paul is the notion that conditions need to be met in order to come to Christ. Beloved, if we need to do anything in order to come to Jesus, we're done. The word is not do this and come to Christ. Put the bottle down and come to Christ. Do this good thing and come to Christ. The word is come to Christ. The word is not clean yourself up a little bit, make yourself a little more presentable and then trust him. The word is sinner, miserable wretch, trust the Savior and receive righteousness in life eternal. We do not need to seek or find anything in ourselves other than sin and misery in order to lay hold of Christ in faith as our righteousness. And if sanctification, because I think these ways, I trust you do too. If sanctification and bearing fruit are our concern, which we should be concerned for, friend, beloved, we will not find those things through any other means than by casting ourselves wholly upon Christ. Sanctification and fruit come no other way than to rest in Christ alone. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, says the Lord. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. That's Isaiah 46, 12. Or Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You don't pay for this. You receive it. It is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In verses 9 and 10, Paul makes plain the way of salvation. It is that we confess that Jesus is Lord and that we believe in him as our resurrected Savior. Now, the emphasis on Christ's resurrection should simply be understood this way. It's not as though his death and his law-keeping don't matter, but it's that in him rising from the grave, that is the evidence that his work was done. That is the vindication of everything that he had accomplished. In rising from the dead, Jesus obtained the victory that he had won over sin and death and Satan. The connection that Paul points to in verses 9 and 10 between our hearts and our mouths is easy enough to understand. We say what we believe. We confess what we trust. So what's coming out of our Mouth is coming from here. Out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. This is certainly true in a damning way when it comes to our sinfulness. But this is also true of the saints in a salvific sense because the Lord has given life and faith and we speak what we believe. We confess what we trust. By faith in Jesus, we are justified. By faith in Jesus, we are saved, and we gladly, gladly confess him with our lips. Point three, everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved, verses 11 to 13. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. This will be brief. Paul now returns in these verses, 11 to 13, to the salvation of the Gentiles in particular. What's his word regarding the salvation of the nations? It's that everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. And by that, do we mean everyone? Yes, we mean everyone who believes. 
will be saved. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Everyone without exception who believes in Jesus and calls upon his name will never be put to shame. This too is the testimony of the prophets. Paul again cites Isaiah 28, 16, and also Joel 2, 32. Why does he cite the prophets? Paul is an apostle. He's inspired of the Spirit, just as the prophets were. He doesn't need them in that regard. But he cites the prophets to further prove his point of the unity and the consistency of one plan of God to save a people from the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He's continuing to help us see how the Lord has always done what he said he would do. Now, this logically opens up what Paul's going to write in the coming verses regarding preaching the gospel to all people. That's where we're going next week. But it also continues to demonstrate that there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles as it pertains to being children of promise, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So I want to conclude our time now by reflecting, thinking, applying regarding the distinction between the law and the gospel and also regarding the first and greatest use of the law. These are things that we consider in various contexts in the life of our church and even in talking with the elders this week. I can kind of live in this space all the time and think that I say this perpetually, but in reality, these are things that are so helpful for us to understand as a congregation. And these are things that we don't always hear in a setting such as this. And so we trust the Lord as we consider the distinction between the law and the gospel and the first use of the law. Allow me to cite John Calvin one more time. These are words that he wrote regarding Romans 10.8. He says, The contrast between the law and the gospel is indeed to be understood. And from this distinction, we learn that as the law demands work, so the gospel requires nothing but that men bring faith to receive the grace of God. Close quote. Think about the letter to the Romans. Think about the words that Paul has been writing now for 10 chapters. You remember chapter 2, verses 6 through 13, where Paul, in condemning us all, makes it plain that God is an impartial, righteous judge. At God's bar, like legal term, at God's bar, we will either be found righteous, a law keeper, or we will be found unrighteous, a lawbreaker. And it is not the hearers of the law who will be justified, but the doers of the law will be justified in God's sight. And remember how just a chapter later in Romans 3, it is true that God will save, well, he will give eternal life to everyone who does good. The problem is there's no one who does good. Anyone who seeks after him, he'll reward with eternal life. The problem is no one seeks God. Then there's Romans 3, 19 and 20, where we read that the law shuts everyone's mouth. It holds us all accountable. And through the law comes knowledge of sin. Then, in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, immediately following that word, that through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now what? The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bears witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for everyone who believes. There's chapter 5 and verse 20, that the law was given to increase the trespass of Adam. Didn't make it better. If anything, it made it worse. There's chapter 7 and verse 13, that through the commandment, through the law, sin is shown to be sin and becomes sinful beyond measure. Then we get to chapter 9 and verse 30 into our passage today that the great error of many Israelites was to think that they needed to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. I hope these things will be helpful to you. Everything that God demands in his law, he grants in his gospel. The law says, 
do this and live. The gospel says Jesus has done it. Now live in him. The law demands everything and gives nothing. The gospel gives everything and demands nothing. The law was not given so that we might do its works and thereby attain righteousness. The law was given so that we might be brought to the end of ourselves and driven to Christ who kept it. The law was given so that we might submit to God's righteousness rather than trying to establish our own. Now, while we're here, there's a lot of language used in the church by well-meaning people, by our brothers and sisters in the faith. A lot of language about submitting to God or about surrendering to God that is less than helpful. The kind of submission and surrender that God is interested in is described in Romans 9.30 through 10.4. I'll, I'll say that one more time. The kind of submission and the kind of surrender that God is interested in is articulated clearly in Romans 9.30 through 10.4, namely, giving up on establishing our own righteousness and receiving the righteousness of Christ by faith. That is submission and that is surrender in the best way. No one can submit to God or to his word or to his law without looking to Christ alone for righteousness and eternal life. No one can submit to God or to his word or to his law without looking to Christ alone for righteousness and eternal life. You remember the rich young man, the rich young ruler? In various synoptic gospels, we get that account. Let me remind you of it if you're not familiar. There's a wealthy man who comes to talk to Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And we all know that Jesus begins by saying, hey, why do you call me good? Because only God's good. In other words, no human being is good. That's important when it comes to entering eternal life. No human is good. But then Jesus says, well, you know, if you're going to have eternal life, you need to keep the commandments. And the young man responds, well, I've done that since my youth. He asks, what, which commandments? And Jesus outlines them. And he says, well, I've done that since I was young. And Jesus says to him, well, you still lack one thing. If you would be perfect, you lack one thing. And then he tells him three things. Go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. What's Jesus doing right there? He is driving the weight of the law down on that young man's conscience. He's saying, all right, friend, you claim to have kept the law. You claim to have loved God and loved neighbor perfectly. Prove it. Prove your love to God and your love to neighbor by selling everything you have, giving it to the poor, and following me. If you would do that, you'd be perfect. Man can't do it. He goes away dejected. Brief comment. What Jesus is doing there is preaching the law to that young man. He's not preaching the gospel to him. He's preaching the law to him, to crush him. Many times we hear that text expounded and we hear surrender all for Jesus is the good news. That is not the gospel. First of all, no one's ever done it. And it's not what scripture teaches. What Jesus is saying is, you need, if you claim to have kept the law, you need to prove that you've done it by demonstrating perfect love to God and perfect love to neighbor. You have not done so. And the irony of the entire account is that the righteousness under the law that that young man needed was standing right in front of him. The young man goes away dejected. The disciples are warped out of their frames because Jesus starts to say things like it's really hard for wealthy people to be saved. And the disciples don't know what to do with that. We hear that and we think, oh, well, yeah, love of money and all those kinds of things. But understand that under the old covenant arrangement, to be wealthy meant you had been obedient to God. You were blessed materially because you had kept the law. Read Deuteronomy 28. So the disciples, the reason they're wrecked 
is they're like, how, how can anyone be saved if this man can't? He's rich because he's obedient, and you're telling us he can't be saved. How can anyone be saved? To which Jesus responds, with man it is impossible, but with God it is possible. Law and gospel. If we want the righteousness of the law, which we need for salvation, understand that. You need, I need the righteousness of the law to be saved. And if we want it, it will be found in one place and in one person. And his name is Jesus. The law in all its parts had a reference to Christ. Whatever the law teaches, whatever it commands, whatever it promises, has always a reference to Christ as its main object. And hence, all its parts ought to be applied to him. The righteousness of Christ is the righteousness of the law because he kept the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law in every sense, beloved, that we have ever been under it. And at the end of it all, his righteousness is the only righteousness in which anyone can stand on the last day. At the end of the greatest sermon on the law that has ever been preached, called the Sermon on the Mount, you remember the words of Christ there at the end of Matthew 7, where he says to his listeners, anyone who does not hear what I've said and act accordingly is like the person who built his house on the sand. Anyone who does hear what I've said and acts accordingly is like the one who built his house on the rock. Now, taking that sermon into consideration, taking Romans into consideration, taking all of Scripture into consideration. What is the rock on which you will build your life? I promise you it's not your works. What, who is the rock on which you will build your life? And all of God's people say, Jesus. We build our lives on the rock who is Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand.